We've all experienced this before. You're in the car, approaching a traffic stop, and the light blinks from green to yellow. You have a few seconds to decide if you can make it safely through the intersection. But if you've ever been behind the wheel in a city with red light cameras, your thought process might be a little different. Why risk trying to beat the light when, if you misjudge, you could be slapped with a huge fine? So you slam on the brakes instead. Drivers in Chicago know this reality all too well. At its peak, the city had hundreds of red light cameras at intersections across the city, making it the largest robotic camera network in the country. Drivers forked over more than $600 million in fines, and none of it really did much to improve driver safety. At nearly half the cameras, up to 40% of these intersections, there was never a problem with accidents, red light running, to begin with. And if that wasn't bad enough, the city's contract for the cameras was built on a foundation of corruption. And I think this person who wrote this memo um, said something in it like, you know, this, 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 this scheme is enough uh, to bring down this contract and most likely the company itself. That's David Kidwell of the Chicago Tribune. On this episode, podcast contributor Aaron Pellish talks to David about his years spent investigating a massive bribery scheme at the heart of the red light camera program. He uncovered bribery, extortion, and fraud, all of which led to the conviction of a former Chicago city official this year. He also found that the cameras designed to make the city streets safer, well, not only were they not helping, but they were sometimes making things worse. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast. One evening in February 2003, John Bills sat down with a group of executives from a company called Red Flex Traffic Systems. They were sitting in the lounge at the top of the John Hancock building in Chicago, and they were hatching a plan. John Bills was the deputy commissioner for Chicago's transportation department and was one of seven city employees who would pick which company would receive the contract for Chicago's lucrative red light camera program. Red Flex would go on to meet Bills again the very next day, this time at City Hall, as one of two finalists for the red light camera contract. He was essentially helping them, steering the contract to them, even back then. Um, and how he had, he told them how he, uh, they, they had to pretend like they had never met when they showed up at City Hall the next day. Sure enough, Red Flex got the contract to install red light cameras throughout Chicago. At its peak, there were cameras at nearly 200 intersections across the city. David Kidwell didn't find out about this meeting until 2014, two years into a four-year investigation for the Chicago Tribune. The Hancock Tower meeting was just one piece of a massive puzzle he slowly solved. Story by story, he exposed bribery, fraud, and extortion in the city's red light camera program. The scheme would ultimately lead to the downfall of John Bills. The former Chicago city official was convicted earlier this year on 20 charges for, among other things, accepting $2 million worth of bribes and creating a method for City Hall to collect more than $600 million in traffic fines from Chicago's drivers. The scale of it surprises me. The, the 
absolute brazenness of this scheme, even by Chicago standards, is just, uh, it is surprising. For David, the story started when Rahm Emanuel first ran for mayor in 2011. David had covered political scandals in the past, including when former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich was caught on tape soliciting bribes for political appointments, so he was familiar with how slimy Chicago politics could be. But he was intrigued when, as part of his campaign, Emanuel promised to be, quote, the most transparent mayor in Chicago history. So after he won, uh, after he took office in May 2011, one of the first things we did uh, was to drop records requests on his office for um, all of his major initiatives, and we wanted to see his internal correspondence. We were holding him to his promise. At first, Emmanuel refused David's records requests. But surprisingly, the mayor granted him an interview. David was hoping to press Emmanuel on the ways he could live up to his promise of being transparent. And uh, when I got there, I, I turned the tape recorder on. I, we never expected what what transpired to transpire so we we had no we went in there having no intentions of publishing anything or uh, or i mean in terms of the entire interview or anything um and it proceeded uh to devolve i guess into um he he immediately took an aggressive tone i think one of the first things we he said to me was um, I hate you. Um, I don't know. I don't know where that came from, but I mean, he was half joking, but it was only half joking. And um, and so he set this tone very early on in this interview, and he and he kept getting more and more aggressive, and I kept pushing and pushing and pushing and him for answers as to why it is he felt that none of the things that happen on the floor or any of the public's business. Um, and he says, well, I'm telling you. And I kept saying, I don't want to hear you tell me how you govern. I want to know how you govern. His interview with Emmanuel turned into a 90-minute, tension-filled argument over Emmanuel's role as mayor and his policies, including the effectiveness of the red light camera program. The Tribune ended up publishing a transcript of the entire interview because they thought it showed a new side of their city's mayor. There was one point where where I made a remark that um, I don't know that I would do it again, but uh, it was seen by some people in here as flip or or sarcastic. Um, he said something like, um, uh, "I'm I'm transparent. I, see, I released all the salaries of all my of all my staff," uh, and I said something that like to him like, "Well, congratulations." Or something like that, and 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 then he got he he just flew off the handle. And he reached over and turned my tape recorder off. That's it, off the record. You don't get to talk to me like that. I mean, and and, and he he he. That's when he really flew off the handle, and we went back on the record after a, about thirty seconds of his ranting, and I apologized and I said, you know, the idea that the public salaries of your staff as public record is a, some sort of accomplishment of yours is a bit of a leap. And he said, well, I never said that. And, and, and then we kind of went on. But he, but I found the angrier he got, the the more revealing he was about how he, 
how he thinks about things, right? I mean, that's typically if you can get people off of their off of their you know wrote prepared press office statements and into the realm of of frustration or anger or I mean that's really often the only time you get these people to say things that aren't that are off script. During the interview, Emmanuel argued that the Tribune was ignoring a study showing that red light cameras had reduced fatalities by 60%. So David took the study home, did some due diligence, and found out that the study was, well, bogus. So he dug a little deeper. We did that interview with the mayor, and then we did this, we did, right after that, we did a story about, oh, look at this, the mayor's former campaign manager's working for Red Flex. Um, you know, might that have something to do with the mayor's enthusiasm for this program? And then we wrote another story about how the guy who used to run the program is now working for the mayor's former campaign manager. And as, and, and when his name was in the paper, I started getting anon- anonymously uh, a tip about him. And I, I think I got an anonymous email from some, you know, a, account that couldn't be traced um, that said, John Bill's Red Flex is corrupt, and so is John Bills. That's the extent of the email. And typically, I would look at an email like that and say, "Uh, you know, it's a crackpot," or, or uh, you know, how do you? Okay, now what? Um, but I, I, um, something about it just seemed like uh, I don't, I don't know what it was. Even though he was working on another project, David decided to follow the tip as best as he could. He heard rumblings about an internal Red Flex email that proved the Arizona-based company had been bribing city officials, and he wanted to get his hands on it. But tracking down that single document turned out to be a major undertaking. The author of the memo lived in the west, on the East Coast, and then there were people in Arizona, and I was trying to woo this person in email, and then in the meantime, I was knocking on, on people's doors, um, former employees, tracking down former employees of Red Flex, um, people who I thought may have been privy to this memo that I couldn't get. Um, I kept hearing about a memo, couldn't get it. It took me a while to find somebody who had it. And once I found somebody who had it, they kept wanting to read it to me. They kept wanting to give me portions of it. And I kept explaining to them, look, we can do it that way. Um, but then I have to put anonymous sources. If I am ever able to use this, I have to. I, I put your identity in jeopardy because once I start using sources in the newspaper, anybody who has an interest in this is going to have an interest in the source. If I can get my hands on the actual document, it authenticates itself. I don't have to say where I got it as long as I can prove that it's authentic. Eventually. After months of reporting, David got his hands on the memo. It laid out the entire bribery scheme, exactly as David had suspected, including a minimum $1,500 payment to John Bills for each camera installed and several payments to Bills in the form of hotel accommodations. The quotes in this memo were striking. They were and very foretelling, and it was very accurate uh, to what ended up being the truth. And, the, and I think this person who wrote this memo, um, said something in it like, you know, this, 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 this scheme is enough uh, to 
bring down this contract and most likely the company itself. I mean, he had a complete understanding of how serious this was. But a document that laid out the entire Red Flex bribery scheme wasn't enough. Before anything could go to print, David had to report out each of the allegations made in the memo. To say it was a daunting task might be an understatement. I was told by editors here that, you know, this, we're never going to get this memo in the paper. We're, uh, this memo accuses people of committing crimes. And, and we, no matter how much work you do, you're never going to be able to prove a crime. And so um, there was some thinking early on you know, do we really want to go down this road and, and spend your time, your very expensive time, trying to figure this out? And um, so I was sort of working on my own for, you know, as I got time for months and months and months, trying to track down proof of some of these allegations that were made in this in this internal whistleblower memo from 2010. And then David got lucky. At some point in his reporting... Red Flex got wind that he had this document, and they panicked. The company made a formal disclosure to the city about the contents of the memo. Then, they scheduled a meeting with all of their lawyers, all of their PR people, and David. And they denied every allegation in the memo, except for one. They said that that memo was written by a crazy, disgruntled employee, that they got it in 2010, that they investigated every allegation and deep, we did a deep dive in, in, in an internal investigation into all the allegations in this memo, and all of them were bogus. It was complete uh, nonsense, except we, do, you know, in the process of investigating this, we did come up with this one hotel tab that we inadvertently paid for John Bills, and um, uh, and it was a nine hundred and I think it was a $910 hotel tab that uh, that an executive vice president had mistakenly paid for John Bills. And we we reprimanded him and we sent him to anti-bribery school and 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 that's and that's as far as it went. Um, uh, but because we had done that, we felt compelled to come here to the city and and disclose to them that we had done that and we have now done that and. We are here to tell you that everything is fine. Because Redflex came forward about the allegations, the Tribune was able to publish a story in the newspaper, along with the memo, the very next day. David felt Redflex wanted to push them to publish the story prematurely, but it ended up confirming just how shady Redflex really was. When they left, when Redflex left our offices, my editor sat in on that interview. Uh, we knew for certain um, that... Um, almost every allegation in that memo was true uh, because just of uh, the fact that they had done uh, this deep dive investigation that wasn't a deep dive and they hadn't done certain things that any logical person would do. Uh, to, uh, I mean, we knew, for instance, uh, because we had confirmed independently that um, they were paying this bag man $1,500 for every camera that went up uh, in the city of Chicago, um, and and uh, they they had investigated this in this 
alleged deep dive investigation and didn't ask anybody whether this bag man had known John Bills or how how this bag man came to be hired. And we knew that they had known each other because we talked to them already. Once they published the memo, the whole bribery scheme began to unravel. David wrote dozens of stories about the inconsistencies between what Redflex told them and what they knew to be true, including a story about the meeting at the top of the John Hancock building. His reporting led to investigations by the Chicago Inspector General and the FBI, and eventually the indictment of John Bills. So while the FBI investigated the bribery, David shifted his focus to the actual red light camera program. Look, if the contract is corrupt, and it apparently is, um, what about the program? What's going on with uh, the, the way these cameras are operating out there? If these people are, are that corrupt that they would do this, what are they doing to the drivers of the city of Chicago? David wanted to understand how the red light cameras worked. So in September 2013, he got access to more than 4 million tickets that had been issued by red light cameras. David and the Tribune's then-data reporter Alex Richards, who we should mention is now a trainer here at IRE, spent 10 months combing through all the tickets and traffic footage. They used their analysis to build graphs for each of the nearly 200 intersections that had red light cameras, charting the number of tickets each camera issued per day over the camera's lifespan. Because typically, what all the experts were telling us was when you put these cameras in, uh, initially there's this huge spike in tickets because people aren't used to a camera being there. But over time, people are supposed to learn, it's supposed to improve their behavior, and the tickets are gradually supposed to taper off and come to a to a very very low number, and everything's safer out there. That's that's how they're supposed to work. So we plotted those graphs on for every single camera in the system. And we found these incredible anomalies, um, dozens of them, where uh, the tickets would spike late or on two days in in one place, and where tickets were where, where the number of tickets were going from like thirty or or below up up to five hundred, and then right back down. And um, um, and and we would then I would spend weeks going through, okay, well, what was going on out there? What was, um, I, I'd look at the videos of all of the things and I would figure out what they were enforcing and how the enforcement had changed. And I'd go to the city and I'd say, you know, what happened out here? Did you move a cone that day or something? What what caused, Did some was there some traffic surge? Was there something going on out there that was, had nothing to do with the cameras that was causing this? And they couldn't, they, they weren't helpful and could not, could not provide it. So so we had literally dozens and dozens, tens of thousands of tickets that were affected like this. And uh, and we found, uh, at the end of the day, we found that they were changing what was being enforced from day to day, and there were camera malfunctions, and it was it was just a mess. It was, and, and, and they, nobody, it, it was almost like they had plugged the city of Chicago into a cash machine and walked away. Nobody was watching the store. David also found out that the city was using shortened yellow light times to essentially entrap drivers. Most cities use the modern yellow light time standard, which is incrementally increased based on the speed limit. In Chicago, yellow light times are three seconds. Across the board, no exceptions. Which, in and of itself, isn't necessarily 
that egregious um, because people get used to it uh, when you're driving and because if you miss the yellow light by a tenth of a second or two tenths of a second, no big deal because there, there's this um, all red interval. Uh, so you're you're not really running a red light. You might be late on the yellow, but it's okay because the other side still stopped anyway because of an all red interval. So it's not that big a deal, unless you start throwing up red light cameras, because then people, in addition to the people who don't want to to get a ticket, are slamming on the brakes. Uh, they don't have enough time. The, yellow, the short yellow light doesn't give them enough time to make a cognitive decision. On top of that, the city pushed the yellow light threshold even further. Redflex had actual humans reviewing pending tickets and tossing out any tickets issued when the yellow light was shorter than three seconds. But after the company admitted to bribing city officials, Mayor Emanuel fired Redflex and hired a new company. So what <laughs> happened when the new company came in was they... Um, they raised this issue, and the mayor's office said, "You know what? Issue them at 2.9." So not only not only were is the yellow light short, they were issuing tickets when the yellow light was even shorter um, than it than it than is allowable, um, and they issued somewhere in the neighborhood of seven million dollars in tickets on that. We caught them. Um, they acknowledged doing it uh, and didn't offer any refunds. David continued to find problems with the red light cameras as he reported. He found out that tickets were being issued for legal right turns at red lights. He found out that the people at Redflex who were supposed to be monitoring unusual ticket spikes were ignoring their responsibility. He found out that Chicago's red light program grew to become the largest traffic enforcement network in the nation taking in about $68.4 million in 2013 alone. But the thing that angered David the most, the thing that still angers him to this day, is the result of a safety analysis of the red light cameras that the Tribune independently commissioned in 2014. David kept getting data from City Hall about how the red light cameras reduced the number of accidents, specifically high-impact right-angle T-bone crashes. But he also knew that the city had not conducted any research into the effects of the cameras on the streets of Chicago. So in the summer and fall of 2014, the Tribune got a team of people to conduct an independent study. But essentially, we went out and we found experts, we found scientists, academics, uh, who had no stake in the game and to help us. And we collected the data and we went out to every intersection in the study and how many lanes? What do the lights look like? You know, are there turning arrows? Are there, is there turning? Like all the things that they told us to collect, we collect all the crash statistics from the State Department of Transportation. Um, we found a control group of camera of intersections that had never been treated with cameras that they used as a comparison. Did everything the way all the experts told us to do. And what at the end of the day, what that, what that. Study showed was that at nearly at nearly half of the cameras, up to forty percent of these intersections, there was never a problem with accidents, red light running, to begin with. Since the beginning of the red light program, the city of Chicago has advocated for the program under the premise that it would make the city streets safer. But the Tribune study found that that wasn't really happening. And so, what our study ended up finding was that 
nearly 40% of the intersections equipped with red light cameras. There had been no safety benefit in terms of reduction of right angle crashes because there weren't really very many there to begin with. But there had been a corresponding 22% increase in rear end crashes that caused injuries. And so we, we, the Chicago Tribune presented the city with science, the only science that has ever been done on this program in December of 2014 that essentially proved that nearly half of the intersections equipped with red light cameras were more dangerous because of the cameras. For David, the study was a major victory and a turning point in his investigation. But it also deeply disturbed him to see Chicago's politicians acting so blatantly corrupt. To me, that is the, is, is the most striking uh, thing, is that, that, that all else be damned uh, doesn't, you know, it's not really about safety. If they're going to leave up cameras that are causing more injuries than they're preventing uh, in order to, to earn millions of dollars in revenue. It goes against everything they've ever said about the purpose of these camps. With another piece of the puzzle in place, David refocused his reporting yet again, this time to expose the framework of political corruption that allowed a red flex to bribe city officials and the city to manipulate traffic cameras. He dug into John Bills' background, and he found some interesting information. At the time he left the city, he was the managing deputy commissioner of the Department of Transportation, the number two man at the transportation. But it is very important to understand who he, who he is and who he was. Um, he, he had a 32-year career at, at Chicago City Hall starting as a lamp maintenance man in the city's Bureau of Electricity. Um, and he rose through the ranks uh, at City Hall as part of a patronage army of a career politician here in the state of Illinois by the name of Mike Madigan. Mike Madigan is the Speaker of the Illinois House of Representatives and one of the most powerful people in Illinois and Chicago politics. He's established a wide network throughout the state and is famous for extending the weight of his influence to secure even the smallest political appointments in order to strengthen his influence. John Bills worked for Madigan as a precinct captain and helped organize voters to vote for Madigan's people, and Madigan helped Bills rise through the ranks in return. But during one election, Bills helped organize votes for his friend, who was running for a county clerk position against a Madigan candidate. To Madigan, this was an act of disloyalty and he felt that he needed to teach Bills a lesson. And as a consequence of that incident, John Bills, who was at the time an assistant commissioner, a very high-level position in City Hall, was handed a tape measure and sent to a trailer on the south side of Chicago, where he spent the next year measuring offices for renovations. Um, he was exiled uh, and punished for a year, and eventually they let him back in. But it was when he came off of that experience that this scheme began. So it, in some circles, it defies credibility that a guy like John Bills, on his own, um, without uh, any approval or any, uh, or any um, 
could orchestrate a scheme of this magnitude. So far, Bills, who retired from the city in 2011, is the only city official to be indicted over this scheme. But David is still reporting, turning over every rock to see if more city officials were involved. Which brings us back to the mayor. Despite all the drama with Red Flex and the red light camera program, Rahm Emanuel was working to get a new speed camera program up and running in Chicago. David has been reporting on the speed cameras for a while, and he wants the mayor to be the transparent politician he promised he would be. Is anybody else, whether, whether elected official or not, responsible, or did they have knowledge or approval of this scheme that has made, that is approaching a billion dollars in revenue for the city of Chicago? What was it? What was it that convinced Rahm Emanuel that speed cameras were such a good idea? Did he come up with that idea on his own? Who 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 was he talking to? Who who was he advising him? Did he have any uh, conversations with any of these red flex lobbyists while he was contemplating an expansion to speed cameras? These are all things that City Hall suggests are none of our business, and I think they are. David is still reporting on the speed camera program and corruption in Chicago politics. He's got an open lawsuit against the mayor to get access to his internal communications. But with the conviction of John Bills, David's reporting on the red light cameras seemed to come to a natural conclusion. Someone was held accountable. His reporting helped put a criminal in prison. I asked David if he was satisfied by that. I mean, people have asked me that question here in the newsroom, and I would tell you the same thing I've told them. I'm a bit disappointed. He's disappointed that the cameras are still up and running. Disappointed that the city still makes money off putting people at risk. Disappointed that there are people who are probably guilty of defrauding the city that will never be brought to justice. So he's going to keep reporting until he can make things right. I don't feel vindicated. I don't feel... uh, uh, I'm not celebrating the fact that somebody's going to prison for, for... more than 10 years, probably, uh, because of his role in this. Um, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm glad it all came out. I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of that, and I feel like I've, I've done the best I could to do what, what my newspaper pays me to do. Um, uh, it's just seems like there's more ground to be tread, uh, and I'm not ready to give up on it yet. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And head over to irie.org podcast to browse our archives. If you're at the CAR conference in Denver this week, we hope you'll stop by and say hello. Aaron Pellish reported our story this week. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins is our editor. You can find all of our emails in the show notes. Coming up next, a look inside the country's largest women's prison. Miami Herald reporter Julie Brown discusses her powerful reporting on Florida's Lowell Correctional Institution and the widespread abuse and mistreatment happening inside. You know, every day there are inmates dying in the Florida prison system from, essentially, they need just basic, you know, there's people that are dying of pneumonia in the Florida prison system. You know, people don't die of pneumonia anymore. I mean, you get antibiotics, there's treatment for people that become ill like that. People are dying of things that they don't need to die from. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal.
Diary. 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 Radio. Podcast. Podcast.